Book Four, Chapter Three, Part Two of *The Old Wives' Tale* by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. *The Old Wives' Tale* by Arnold Bennett. Book Four: What Life Is. Chapter Three, Towards Hotel Life, Part Two, Four. The next evening, Cyril sat at the tea table in the parlour with his mother and his aunt. To Constance, his presence there had something of the miraculous in it. He had come after all. Sophia was in a rich robe, and for ornament wore an old silver gilt neck chain, which was clasped at the throat and fell in double to her waist, where it was caught in her belt. This chain interested Cyril. He referred to it once or twice, and then he said, "'Just let me have a look at that chain,' and put out his hand, and Sophia leant forward so that he could handle it. His fingers played with it thus for some seconds. The picture strikingly affected Constance. At length he dropped it, and said, "'Hm!' After a pause he said, "'Louis Sixteenth, eh?' And Sophia said, "'They told me so, but it's nothing. It only cost thirty francs, you know.' And Cyril took her up sharply. "'What does that matter?' Then, after another pause, he asked, "'How often do you break a link of it?' "'Oh, often,' she said. "'It's always getting shorter.' And he murmured mysteriously, "'Hm!' He was still mysterious, withdrawn within himself, extraordinarily uninterested in his physical surroundings. But that evening he talked more than he usually did. He was benevolent, and showed a particular benevolence towards his mother, apparently exerting himself to answer her questions with fullness and heartiness, as though admitting frankly her right to be curious. He praised the tea. He seemed to notice what he was eating. He took spot on his knee, and gazed in admiration at Fossette. "'By Jove!' he said. "'That's a dog, that is. All the same!' and he burst out laughing. "'I won't have Fossette laughed at,' Sophia warned him. "'No, seriously,' he said, in his quality of an amateur of dogs. "'She is very fine.' Even then he could not help adding, "'What you can see of her.' Whereupon Sophia shook her head, deprecating such wit. Sophia was very lenient towards him. Her leniency could be perceived in her eyes, which followed his movements all the time. "'Do you think he's like me, Constance?' she asked. "'I wish I was half as good-looking,' said Cyril quickly. And Constance said, "'As a baby he was very like you. He was a handsome baby. He wasn't at all like you when he was at school. These last few years he's begun to be like you again. He's very much changed since he left school. He was rather heavy and clumsy then.' "'Heavy and clumsy!' exclaimed Sophia. "'Well, I never should have believed it.' "'Oh, but he was,' Constance insisted. "'Now, Mater,' said Cyril, "'it's a pity you don't want that cake cutting into. "'I think I could have eaten a bit of that cake. "'But, of course, if it's only for show—' "'Constance sprang up, seizing a knife. "'You shouldn't tease your mother,' Sophia told him. "'He doesn't really want any, Constance. "'He's regularly stuffed himself.' "'And Cyril agreed. "'No, no, Mater, don't cut it. "'I really couldn't. "'I was only gassing.' But Constance could never see clearly through humour of that sort. 
She cut three slices of cake, and she held the plate towards Cyril. "'I tell you, I really couldn't,' he protested. "'Come,' she said obstinately, "'I'm waiting. How much longer must I hold this plate?' And he had to take a slice. So had Sophia. When she was roused, they both of them had to yield to Constance. With the dogs and the splendour of the tea-table under the gas, and the distinction of Sophia and Cyril, and the conversation, which on the whole was gay and free, rising at times to jory garrulity, the scene in her parlour ought surely to have satisfied Constance utterly. She ought to have been quite happy, as her sciatica had raised the siege for a space. But she was not quite happy. The circumstances of Cyril's arrival had disturbed her. They had, in fact, wounded her though she would scarcely admit the wound. In the morning she had received a brief letter from Cyril, to say that he had not been able to come, and vaguely promising, or half-promising, to run down at a later date. That letter had the cardinal defects of all Cyril's relations with his mother. It was casual, and it was not candid. It gave no hint of the nature of the obstacle which had prevented him from coming. Cyril had always been too secretive. She was gravely depressed by the letter, which she did not show to Sophia, because it impaired her dignity as a mother, and displayed her son in a bad light. Then, about eleven o'clock, a telegram had come for Sophia. "'That's all right,' Sophia had said on reading it. "'He'll be here this evening.' And she had handed over the telegram, which read, "'Very well. We'll come same train to-day.' And Constance learned that when Sophia had rushed out just before tea on the previous evening, it was to telegraph to Cyril. "'What did you say to him?' Constance asked. "'Oh,' said Sophia, with a careless air, "'I told him I thought he ought to come. After all, you're more important than any business, Constance, and I don't like him behaving like that. I was determined he should come.' Sophia had tossed her proud head. Constance had pretended to be pleased and grateful, but the existence of a wound was incontestable. Sophia, then, could do more with Cyril than she could. Sophia had only met him once, and could simply twist him round her little finger. He would never have done so much for his mother. A fine sort of obstacle it must have been, if a single telegram from Sophia could overcome it. And Sophia, too, was secretive. She had gone out and had telegraphed, and had not breathed a word until she got the reply, sixteen hours later. She was secretive, and Cyril was secretive. They resembled one another. They had taken to one another. But Sophia was a curious mixture. When Constance had asked her if she should go to the station again to meet Cyril, she had replied scornfully, "'No, indeed. I've done going to meet Cyril. People who don't arrive must not expect to be met.' When Cyril drove up to the door, Sophia had been in attendance. She hurried down the steps. "'Don't say anything about my telegram,' she had rapidly whispered to Cyril. There was no time for further explanation. Constance was at the top of the steps. Constance had not heard the whisper, but she had seen it, and she saw a guilty, puzzled look on Cyril's face, afterwards an ineffectively concealed conspiratorial look on both their faces. They had something between them, from which she, the mother, was shut out. Was it not natural that she should be wounded? She was far too proud to mention the telegrams. And as neither Cyril nor Sophia mentioned them, the circumstances leading to Cyril's change of plan were not referred to at all, which was very curious. Then Cyril was more sociable than he had ever been. He was different under his aunt's gaze. 
Certainly he treated his mother faultlessly, but Constance said to herself, "'It's because she's here that he's so specially nice to me.' When tea was finished and they were going upstairs to the drawing-room, she asked him, with her eye on the staggered eve engraving, "'Well, is it a success?' "'What?' His eye followed hers. "'Oh, you've changed it. What did you do that for, Mater? You said it would be better like that,' she reminded him. "'Did I?' He seemed genuinely surprised. "'I don't remember. I believe it is better, though,' he added. "'It might be even better still if you turned it the other way up.' He pulled a face to Sophia and screwed up his shoulders as if to indicate, "'I've done it this time.' "'How the other way up? Constance queried. Then, as she comprehended that he was teasing her, she said, "'Get away with you!' and pretended to box his ears. "'You were fond enough of that picture at one time,' she said, ironically. "'Yes, I was, Mater,' he submissively agreed. "'There's no getting over that.' And he pressed her cheeks between his hand and kissed her. In the drawing-room he smoked cigarettes and played the piano, waltzes of his own composition. Constance and Sophia did not entirely comprehend those waltzes, but they agreed that all were wonderful, and that one was very pretty indeed. It soothed Constance that Sophia's opinion coincided with hers. He said that that waltz was the worst of the lot. When he had finished with the piano, Constance informed him about Amy. "'Oh, she told me,' he said, when she brought me my water. I didn't mention it, because I thought it would be rather a sore subject.' Beneath the casualness of his tone there lurked a certain curiosity, a willingness to hear details. He heard them. At five minutes to ten, when Constance had yawned, he threw a bomb among them on the hearthrug. "'Well,' he said, "'I've got an appointment with Matthew at the Conservative Club at ten o'clock. I must go. Don't wait up for me.' Both women protested, Sophia the more vivaciously. It was Sophia now who was wounded.' "'It's business,' he said, defending himself. "'He's going away early to-morrow, and it's my only chance.' And as Constance did not brighten, he went on, "'Business has to be attended to. You mustn't think I've got nothing to do but enjoy myself.' No hint of the nature of the business. He never explained. As to business, Constance knew only that she allowed him three hundred a year, and paid his local tailor. The sum had at first seemed to her enormous— but she had grown accustomed to it. "'I should have preferred you to see Mr. Peel Swinnerton here,' said Constance. "'You could have had a room to yourselves. I do not like you going out at ten o'clock at night to a club.' "'Well, good-night, Mater,' he said, getting up. "'See you to-morrow. I shall take the key out of the door. It's true my pocket will never be the same again.' Sophia saw Constance into bed and provided her with two hot water-bottles against sciatica. They did not talk much. 5. Sophia sat waiting on the sofa in the parlour. It appeared to her that, though a little more than a month had elapsed since her arrival in Bursley, she had already acquired a new set of interests and anxieties. Paris and her life there had receded in the strangest way. Sometimes for hours she would absolutely forget Paris— Thoughts of Paris were disconcerting, for either Paris or Bursley must surely be unreal. As she sat waiting on the sofa, Paris kept coming into her mind. 
Certainly it was astonishing that she should be just as preoccupied with her schemes for the welfare of Constance as she had ever been preoccupied with schemes for the improvement of the Pension Frenchum. She said to herself, "'My life has been so queer, and yet every part of it separately seemed ordinary enough. How will it end?' Then there were footfalls on the steps outside, and a key was put into the door, which she at once opened. "'Oh!' exclaimed Cyril startled, and also somewhat out of countenance. "'You're still up. Thanks.' He came in, smoking the end of a cigar. "'Fancy having to cart that about,' he murmured, holding up the great old-fashioned key before inserting it in the lock on the inside. "'I stayed up,' said Sophia, "'because I wanted to talk to you about your mother, and it's so difficult to get a chance.' Cyril smiled, not without self-consciousness, and dropped into his mother's rocking-chair, which he had twisted round with his feet to face the sofa. "'Yes,' he said, "'I was wondering what was the real meaning of your telegram. What was it?' He blew out a lot of smoke, and waited for her reply. "'I thought you ought to come down,' said Sophia, cheerfully but firmly. "'It was a fearful disappointment to your mother that you didn't come yesterday. And when she's expecting a letter from you, and it doesn't come, it makes her ill.' "'Oh, well,' he said, "'I'm glad it's no worse. "'I thought from your telegram there was something seriously wrong. And "'Then when you told me not to mention it, uh, when I came in—' "'She saw that he had failed to realise the situation, "'and she lifted her head challengingly. "'You neglect your mother, young man,' she said. "'Oh, come now, auntie,' he answered quite gently. "'You mustn't talk like that. "'I write to her every week. "'I've never missed a week.' "'I come down as often as—' "'You miss the Sunday sometimes,' Sophia interrupted him. "'Perhaps,' he said doubtfully, "'but what—' "'Don't you understand that she simply lives for your letters? "'And if one doesn't come, she's very upset indeed, can't eat, "'and it brings on her sciatica, and I don't know what.' "'He was taken aback by her boldness, her directness. "'But how silly of her! A fellow can't always—' "'It may be silly, but there it is. You can't alter her. And, after all, what would it cost you to be more attentive, even to write to her twice a week? You aren't going to tell me that you're so busy as all that. I know a good deal more about young men than your mother does.' She smiled like an aunt. He answered her smile sheepishly. "'If you'll only put yourself in your mother's place.' "'I expect you're quite right,' he said at length. "'And I'm much obliged to you for telling me. "'How was I to know?' "'He threw the end of the cigar "'with a large sweeping gesture into the fire. "'Well, anyhow, you know now,' she said curtly. "'And she thought, you ought to have known. "'It was your business to know.' "'But she was pleased with the way in which he had accepted her criticism, "'and the gesture with which he threw away the cigar-end "'struck her as very distinguished. "'That's all right.' he said dreamily, as if to say, "'That's done with,' and he rose. Sophia, however, did not stir. "'Your mother's health is not what it ought to be,' she went on, and gave him a full account of her conversation with the doctor. "'Really?' Cyril murmured, leaning on the mantelpiece with his elbow and looking down at her. "'Sterling said that, did he? I should have thought she would have been better where she is, in the square. Why better in the square?' "'Oh, I don't know. Neither do I. She's always been here. 
"'Yes,' said Sophia. "'She's been here a great deal too long.' "'What do you suggest?' Cyril asked, with impatience in his voice against this new anxiety that was being thrust upon him. "'Well,' said Sophia, "'what should you say to her coming to London and living with you?' Cyril started back. Sophia could see that he was genuinely shocked. "'I don't think that would do at all,' he said. "'Why?' "'Oh, I don't think it would. London wouldn't suit her. She's not that sort of woman. I really thought she was quite all right down here. She wouldn't like London.' He shook his head, looking up at the gas. His eyes had a dangerous glare. "'But supposing she said she did?' "'Look here,' Cyril began, in a new and brighter tone. "'Why don't you and she keep house together somewhere? That would be the very—' He turned his head sharply. There was a noise on the staircase, and the staircase door opened with its eternal creak. "'Yes,' said Sophia. "'The Champs-Élysées begins at the Place de la Concorde, and then—is that you, Constance?' The figure of Constance filled the doorway. Her face was troubled. She had heard Cyril in the street, and had come down to see why he remained so long in the parlour. She was astounded to find Sophia with him. There they were, as intimate as cronies, chattering about Paris— "'Undoubtedly she was jealous. "'Never did Cyril talk like that to her.' "'I thought you were in bed and asleep, Sophia,' she said weakly. "'It's nearly one o'clock.' "'No,' said Sophia. "'I didn't seem to feel like going to bed, and then Cyril happened to come in.' But neither she nor Cyril could look innocent, and Constance glanced from one to the other apprehensively. The next morning Cyril received a letter which he said, with no further explanation, forced him to leave at once. He intimated that there had been danger in his coming just then, and that matters had turned out as he had feared. "'You think over what I said,' he whispered to Sophia, when they were alone for an instant, "'and let me know.' 6. A week before Easter, the guests at the Rutland Hotel in the Broadwalk, Buxton, being assembled for afternoon tea in the lounge of that establishment, witnessed the arrival of two middle-aged ladies and two dogs. Critically to examine newcomers was one of the amusements of the occupants of the lounge. This apartment, furnished in the Oriental style, made a pretty show among the photographs in the illustrated brochure of the hotel, and though draughty, it was of all the public rooms the favourite. It was draughty because only separated from the street, if the broad walk can be called a street, by two pairs of swinging doors, in charge of two page-boys. Every visitor entering the hotel was obliged to pass through the lounge, and for newcomers the passage was an ordeal. They were made to feel that they had so much to learn, so much to get accustomed to. Like passengers who join a ship at a port of call, they felt that the business lay before them of creating a niche for themselves in a hostile and haughty society. The two ladies produced a fairly favourable impression at the outset by reason of their two dogs. It is not everyone who has the courage to bring dogs into an expensive private hotel. To bring one dog indicates that you are not accustomed to deny yourself small pleasures for the sake of a few extra shillings. To bring two indicates that you have no fear of hotel managers, and that you are in the habit of regarding your own whim as nature's law. The shorter and stouter of the two ladies did not impose herself with much force on the collective vision of the Rutland. She was dressed in black, not fashionably, though with a certain unpretending richness. 
Her gestures were timid and nervous. Evidently she relied on her tall companion to shield her in the first trying contacts of hotel life. The tall lady was of a different stamp. Handsome, stately, deliberate, and handsomely dressed in colours, she had the assured hard gaze of a person who is thoroughly habituated to the inspection of strangers. She curtly asked one of the page-boys for the manager, and the manager's wife tripped rapidly down the stairs in response, and was noticeably deferential. Her voice was quiet and commanding, the voice of one who gives orders that are obeyed. The opinion of the lounge was divided as to whether or not they were sisters. They vanished quietly upstairs in convoy of the manager's wife, and they did not reappear for the lounge tea, which in any case would have been undrinkably stewed. It then became known, by the agency of one of the guests, to be found in every hotel, who acquires all the secrets of the hotel by the exercise of unabashed curiosity on the personnel, that the two ladies had engaged two bedrooms, numbers seventeen and eighteen, and the sumptuous private parlour with a balcony on the first floor, styled C in the nomenclature of rooms. This fact definitely established the position of the new arrivals in the moral fabric of the hotel. They were wealthy. They had money to throw away. For even in a select hotel like the Rutland, it is not everybody who indulges in a private sitting-room. There were only four such apartments in the hotel, as against fifty bedrooms. At dinner they had a small table to themselves in a corner. The short lady wore a white shawl over her shoulders. Her almost apologetic manner during the meal confirmed the view that she must be a very simple person, unused to the world and its ways. The other continued to be imperial. She ordered half a bottle of wine, and drank two glasses. She stared about her, quite self-unconsciously, whereas the little woman divided her glances between her companion and her plate. They did not talk much. Immediately after dinner they retired. "'Widows in easy circumstances,' was the verdict. But the contrast between the pair held puzzles that piqued the inquisitive. Sophia had conquered again. Once more Sophia had resolved to accomplish a thing, and she had accomplished it. Events had fallen out thus. The advertisement for a general servant in the signal had been a disheartening failure. A few answers were received, but of an entirely unsatisfactory character. Constance, a great deal more than Sophia, had been astounded by the bearing and demands of modern servants. Constance was in despair. If Constance had not had an immense pride, she would have been ready to suggest to Sophia that Amy should be asked to stay on. But Constance would have accepted a modern impudent wench first. It was Maria Critchlow who got Constance out of her difficulty, by giving her particulars of a reliable servant, who was about to leave a situation in which she had stayed for eight years. Constance did not imagine that a servant recommended by Maria Critchlow would suit her, but, being in a quandary, she arranged to see the servant, and both she and Sophia were very pleased with the girl, Rose Benyon by name. The mischief was that Rose would not be free until about a month after Amy had left. Rose would have left her old situation, but she had a fancy to go and spend a fortnight with a married sister at Manchester before settling into new quarters. Constance and Sophia felt that this caprice of Rose's was really very tiresome and unnecessary. Of course, Amy might have been asked to stay on just for a month. Amy would probably have volunteered to do so, had she been aware of the circumstances. 
She was not, however, aware of the circumstances, and Constance was determined not to be beholden to Amy for anything. What could the sisters do? Sophia, who conducted all the interviews with Rose and the other candidates, said that it would be a grave error to let Rose slip. Besides, they had no one to take her place, no one who could come at once. The dilemma was appalling. At least it seemed appalling to Constance, who really believed that no mistress had ever been so awkwardly fixed. And yet, when Sophia first proposed her solution, Constance considered it to be a quite impossible solution. Sophia's idea was that they should lock up the house and leave it on the same day as Amy left it, to spend a few weeks in some holiday resort. To begin with, the idea of leaving the house empty seemed to Constance a mad idea. The house had never been left empty. And then, going for a holiday in April? Constance had never been for a holiday except in the month of August. No, the project was beset with difficulties and dangers, which could not be overcome nor provided against. For example, we can't come back to a dirty house, said Constance, and we can't have a strange servant coming here before us. To which Sophia had replied, Then what shall you do? And Constance, after prodigious reflection on the frightful past to which destiny had brought her, had said that she supposed she would have to manage with a charwoman until Rose's advent. She asked Sophia if she remembered old Maggie. Sophia, of course, perfectly remembered. Old Maggie was dead, as well as the drunken, amiable Hollins. But there was a young Maggie, wife of a bricklayer, who went out charring in the spare time left from looking after seven children. The more Constance meditated upon young Maggie, the more she was convinced that young Maggie would meet the case. Constance felt she could trust young Maggie. This expression of trust in Maggie was Constance's undoing. Why should they not go away and arrange with Maggie to come to the house a few days before their return to clean and ventilate? The weight of reason overbore Constance. She yielded unwillingly, but she yielded. It was the mention of Buxton that finally moved her. She knew Buxton. Her old landlady at Buxton was dead, and Constance had not visited the place since before Samuel's death. Nevertheless, its name had a reassuring sound to her ears, and for sciatica its waters and climate were admitted to be the best in England. Gradually, Constance permitted herself to be embarked on this perilous enterprise of shutting up the house for twenty-five days. She imparted the information to Amy, who was astounded. Then she commenced upon her domestic preparations. She wrapped Samuel's family Bible in brown paper. She put Cyril's straw-framed copy of Sir Edwin Landseer away in a drawer, and she took ten thousand other precautions. It was grotesque. It was farcial. It was what you please. And when, with the cab at the door, and the luggage on the cab, and the dogs chained together, and Maria Critchlow waiting on the pavement to receive the key, Constance put the key into the door on the outside, and locked up the empty house, Constance's face was tragic with innumerable apprehensions, and Sophia felt that she had performed a miracle. She had. On the whole, the sisters were well received in the hotel, though they were not at an age which commands popularity. In the criticism which was passed upon them, the free, realistic, and relentless criticism of private hotels, Sophia was at first set down as overbearing, but in a few days this view was modified, and Sophia rose in esteem. 
The fact was that Sophia's behaviour changed after forty-eight hours. The Rutland Hotel was very good. It was so good as to disturb Sophia's profound beliefs that there was in the world only one truly high-class pension, and that nobody could teach the creator of that unique pension anything about the art of management. The food was excellent, the attendance in the bedroom was excellent, and Sophia knew how difficult of attainment was excellent bedroom attendance. And to the eye, the interior of the Rutland presented a spectacle far richer than the pension Frensham could show. The standard of comfort was higher, the guests had a more distinguished appearance. It is true that the prices were much higher. Sophia was humbled. She had enough sense to adjust her perspective. Further, she found herself ignorant of many matters which, by the other guests, were taken for granted, and used as a basis for conversation. Prolonged residence in Paris would not justify this ignorance. It seemed rather to intensify its strangeness. Thus, when someone of cosmopolitan experience, having learnt that she had lived in Paris for many years, asked what had been going on lately at the Comédie Française, she had to admit that she had not been in a French theatre for nearly thirty years. And when, on a Sunday, the same person questioned her about the English chaplain in Paris, lo, she knew nothing but his name, had never even seen him. Sophia's life, in its way, had been as narrow as Constance's. Though her experience of human nature was wide, she had been in a groove as deep as Constance's. She had been utterly absorbed in doing one single thing. By tacit agreement, she had charge of the expedition. She paid all the bills. Constance protested against the expensiveness of the affair several times, but Sophia quietened her by sheer force of individuality. Constance had one advantage over Sophia. She knew Buxton and its neighbourhood intimately, and she was therefore in a position to show off the sights and to deal with local peculiarities. In all other respects, Sophia led. They very soon became acclimatised to the hotel. They moved easily between turkey carpets and sculptured ceilings. Their eyes grew used to the eternal vision of themselves and other slow-moving dignities in gilt mirrors, to the heaviness of great oil-paintings of picturesque scenery, to the indications of surreptitious dirt behind massive furniture, to the grey-brown of the shirt-fronts of the waiters, to the litter of trays, boots, and pails in long corridors, their ears were always awake to the sounds of gongs and bells. They consulted the barometer, and ordered the daily carriage with the perfunctoriness of habit. They discovered what can be learnt of other people's needlework in a hotel on a wet day. They performed cooperative outings with fellow guests. They invited fellow guests into their sitting-room. When there was an entertainment, they did not avoid it. Sophia was determined to do everything that could with propriety be done, partly as an outlet for her own energy, which, since she left Paris, had been accumulating, but more on Constance's account. She remembered all that Dr. Stirling had said, and the heartiness of her own agreement with his opinions. It was a great day when, under the tuition of an aged lady, and in the privacy of their parlour, they both began to study the elements of patience. Neither had ever played at cards. Constance was almost afraid to touch cards— as though in the very cardboard there had been something unrighteous and perilous. But the respectability of a luxurious private hotel makes proper every act that passes within its walls, and Constance plausibly argued that no harm could come from a game which you played by yourself. 
She acquired, with some aptitude, several varieties of patience. She said, "'I think I could enjoy that if I kept at it, but it does make my head whirl.' Nevertheless, Constance was not happy in the hotel. She worried the whole time about her empty house. She anticipated difficulties and even disasters. She wondered again and again whether she could trust the second Maggie in her house alone, whether it would not be better to return home earlier and participate personally in the cleaning. She would have decided to do so had it not been that she hesitated to subject Sophia to the inconvenience of a house upside down. The matter was on her mind always. Always she was restlessly anticipating the day when they would leave. She had carelessly left her heart behind in St. Luke's Square. She had never stayed in a hotel before, and she did not like it. Sciatica occasionally harassed her, yet when it came to the point she would not drink the waters. She said she had never drunk them, and seemed to regard that as a reason why she never should. Sophia had achieved a miracle in getting her to Buxton for nearly a month, but the ultimate grand effect lacked brilliance. Then came the fatal letter, the desolating letter which vindicated Constance's dark apprehensions— Rose Binion calmly wrote to say that she had decided not to come to St. Luke's Square. She expressed regret for any inconvenience which might possibly be caused. She was polite. But the monstrousness of it! Constance felt that this actually and truly was the deepest depth of her calamities. There she was, far from a dirty home, with no servant and no prospect of a servant. She bore herself bravely, nobly, but she was stricken. She wanted to return to the dirty home at once. Sophia felt that the situation created by this letter would demand her highest powers of dealing with situations, and she determined to deal with it adequately. Great measures were needed, for Constance's health and happiness were at stake. She alone could act. She knew that she could not rely upon Cyril. She still had an immense partiality for Cyril. She thought him the most charming young man she had ever known— she knew him to be industrious and clever, but in his relations with his mother there was a hardness, a touch of callousness. She explained it vaguely by saying that they did not get on well together, which was strange, considering Constance's sweet affectionateness. Still, Constance could be a little trying, at times. Anyhow, it soon became clear to Sophia that the idea of mother and son living together in London was entirely impractical. No. If Constance was to be saved from herself, there was no one but Sophia to save her. After half a morning, spent chiefly in listening to Constance's hopeless comments on the monstrous letter, Sophia said suddenly that she must take the dogs for an airing. Constance did not feel equal to walking out, and she would not drive. She did not want Sophia to venture, because the sky threatened. However, Sophia did venture, and she returned a few minutes late for lunch full of vigour with two happy dogs. Constance was moodily awaiting her in the dining-room. Constance could not eat, but Sophia ate, and she poured out cheerfulness and energy as from a source inexhaustible. After lunch it began to rain. Constance said she thought she would retire directly to the sitting-room. "'I'm coming too,' said Sophia, who was still wearing her hat and coat, and carried her gloves in her hand. In the pretentious and banal sitting-room they sat down on either side of the fire. Constance put a little shawl round her shoulders, pushed her spectacles into her grey hair, folded her hands, and sighed an enormous sigh. "'Oh, dear!' 
She was the tragic muse, aged and in black silk. "'I tell you what I have been thinking,' said Sophia, folding up her gloves. "'What?' asked Constance, expecting some wonderful solution to come out of Sophia's active brain. "'There's no earthly reason why you should go back to Bursley. The house won't run away, and it's costing nothing but the rent. Why not take things easy for a bit?' "'And stay here?' said Constance, with an inflection that enlightened Sophia as to the intensity of her dislike of the existence at the Rutland. "'No, not here.' Sophia answered, with quick deprecation. "'There are plenty of other places we could go to.' "'I don't think I should be easy in my mind,' said Constance. "'What with nothing being settled, the house—what does it matter about the house?' "'It matters a great deal,' said Constance, seriously, and slightly hurt. "'I didn't leave things as if we were going to be away for a long time. It wouldn't do.' "'I don't see anything that could come to any harm. I really don't.' said Sophia persuasively. Dirt can always be cleaned, after all. I think you ought to go about more. It would do you good, all the good in the world, and there is no reason why you shouldn't go about. You're perfectly free. Why shouldn't we go abroad together, for instance, you and I? I'm sure you would enjoy it very much. Abroad? murmured Constance, aghast, recoiling from the proposition as from a grave danger. "'Yes,' said Sophia, brightly and eagerly. She was determined to take Constance abroad. "'There are lots of places we could go to, and live very comfortably among nice English people.' She thought of the resort she had visited with Gerald in the sixties. They seemed to her like cities of a dream. They came back to her as a dream recurs. "'I don't think going abroad would suit me,' said Constance. "'But why not? You don't know. You've never tried, my dear.' She smiled encouragingly, but Constance did not smile. Constance was inclined to be grim. "'I don't think it would,' said she, obstinately. "'I'm one of your stay-at-homes. I'm not like you. We can't all be alike,' she added, with her tart accent. Sophia suppressed a feeling of irritation. She knew that she had a stronger individuality than Constance's. "'Well, then,' she said, with undiminished persuasiveness, in England or Scotland. There are several places I should like to visit. Torquay, Tunbridge Wells. I've always understood that Tunbridge Wells is a very nice town indeed, with very superior people and a beautiful climate. I think I shall have to be getting back to St. Luke's Square, said Constance, ignoring all that Sophia had said. There's so much to be done." Then Sophia looked at Constance with a more serious and resolute air, but still kindly, as though looking thus at Constance for Constance's own good. "'You are making a mistake, Constance,' she said, "'if you will allow me to say so.' "'A mistake?' exclaimed Constance, startled. "'A very great mistake,' Sophia insisted, observing that she was creating an effect. "'I don't see how I can be making a mistake,' Constance said gaining confidence in herself, as she thought the matter over. "'No,' said Sophia, "'I'm sure you don't see it. But you are. You know you are just a little apt to let yourself be a slave to that house of yours. Instead of the house existing for you, you exist for the house.' "'Oh, Sophia,' Constance murmured awkwardly, "'what ideas you do have to be sure!' In her nervousness she rose and picked up some embroidery, adjusting her spectacles and coughing. When she sat down, she said, 
"'No one could take things easier than I do as regards housekeeping. "'I can assure you I let dozens of little matters go rather than bother myself.' "'Then why do you bother now?' Sophia posed her. "'I can't leave the place like that.' Constance was hurt. "'There's one thing I can't understand,' said Sophia, raising her head and gazing at Constance again. "'And that is why you live in St. Luke's Square at all.' "'I must live somewhere, and I'm sure it's very pleasant.' "'In all that smoke, and with all that dirt, and the house is very old. "'It's a great deal better built than a lot of those new houses by the park,' Constance sharply retorted. In spite of herself she resented any criticism of her house. She even resented the obvious truth that it was old. "'You'll never get a servant to stay in that cellar kitchen, for one thing,' said Sophia, keeping calm. "'Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. That Benyon woman didn't object to it anyway. It's all very well for you, Sophia, to talk like that, but I know Bursley perhaps better than you do.' She was tart again. "'And I can assure you that my house is looked upon as a very good house indeed.' "'Oh, I don't say it isn't. I don't say it isn't. But you would be better away from it. Everyone says that.' "'Everyone?' Constance looked up dropping her work. "'Who? Who's been talking about me?' "'Well,' said Sophia, "'the doctor, for instance.' "'Dr. Stirling? I like that. He's always saying that Bursley is one of the healthiest climates in England. He's always sticking up for Bursley.' "'Dr. Stirling thinks you ought to go away more, not stay always in that dark house.' If Sophia had sufficiently reflected, she would not have used the adjective dark. It did not help her cause." "'Oh, does he?' Constance fairly snorted. "'Well, if it's of any interest to Dr. Stirling, I like my dark house.' "'Hasn't he ever told you you ought to go away more?' Sophia persisted. "'He may have mentioned it,' Constance reluctantly admitted. "'When he was talking to me, he did a good deal more than mention it, and I have a good mind to tell you what he said.' "'Do,' said Constance politely. "'You don't realise how serious it is, I'm afraid,' said Sophia. "'You can't see yourself.' She hesitated a moment, her blood being stirred by Constance's peculiar inflection of the phrase, "'My dark house.' Her judgment was slightly obscured. She decided to give Constance a fairly full version of the conversation between herself and the doctor. "'It's a question of your health,' she finished. "'I think it's my duty to talk to you seriously, and I have done.' "'I hope you'll take it as it's meant.' "'Oh, of course,' Constance hastened to say. And she thought, "'It isn't yet three months that we've been together, and she's trying already to get me under her thumb.' A pause ensued. Sophia at length said, "'There's no doubt that both your sciatica and your palpitations are due to nerves, and you let your nerves get into a state because you worry over trifles. A change would do you a tremendous amount of good.' It's just what you need. Really, you must admit, Constance, that the idea of living always in a place like St. Luke's Square, when you are perfectly free to do what you like and go where you like, you must admit it's rather too much. Constance put her lips together and bent over her embroidery. Now, what do you say? Sophia gently entreated. The summer was like Bursley, black as it is, said Constance and Sophia was surprised to detect tears in her sister's voice. 
"'Now, my dear Constance,' she remonstrated, "'it's no use,' cried Constance, flinging away her work and letting her tears flow suddenly. Her face was distorted. She was behaving just like a child. "'It's no use. I've got to go back home and look after things. It's no use. Here we are, pitching money about in this place. It's perfectly sinful.' drives carriages extras a shilling a day extra for each dog i never heard of such goings-on and i'd sooner be at home that's it i'd sooner be at home this was the first reference that constance had made for a long time to the question of expense and incomparably the most violent it angered sophia we will count it that you're here as my guest said sophia loftily if that's how you look at it "'Oh, no,' said Constance, "'it isn't the money I grudge. "'Oh, no, we won't.' "'And her tears were falling thick. "'Yes, we will,' said Sophia coldly. "'I've only been talking to you for your own good. I... "'Well,' Constance interrupted her despairingly, "'I wish you wouldn't try to domineer over me.' "'Domineer?' exclaimed Sophia, aghast. "'Well, Constance, I do think.' She got up and went to her bedroom, where the dogs were imprisoned. They escaped to the stairs. She was shaking with emotion. This was what came of trying to help other people. Imagine Constance. Truly Constance was most unjust, and quite unlike her usual self. And Sophia encouraged in her breast the feeling of injustice suffered. But a voice kept saying to her, "'You've made a mess of this. You've not conquered this time. You're beaten.' "'and the situation is unworthy of you, of both of you. Two women of fifty quarrelling like this? "'It's undignified. You've made a mess of things.' "'And to strangle the voice, she did her best to encourage the feeling of injustice suffered. "'Domineer!' "'Constance was absolutely in the wrong. "'She had not argued at all. "'She had merely stuck to her idea like a mule.' How difficult and painful would be the next meeting with Constance after this grievous miscarriage! As she was reflecting thus, the door burst open, and Constance stumbled, as it were, blindly into the bedroom. She was still weeping. "'Sophia!' she sobbed supplicatingly, and all her fat body was trembling. "'You mustn't kill me. I I'm like that. You can't alter me. I'm like that. I know I'm silly, but it's no use!' She made a piteous figure. Sophia was aware of a lump in her throat. "'It's all right, Constance. It's all right. I quite understand. Don't bother any more.' Constance, catching her breath at intervals, raised her wet, worn face and kissed her. Sophia remembered the very words, "'You can't alter her,' which she had used in remonstrating with Cyril. And now she had been guilty of precisely the same unreason as that with which she had reproached Cyril." She was ashamed, both for herself and for Constance. Assuredly it had not been such a scene as women of their age would want to go through often. It was humiliating. She wished that it could have been blotted out as though it had never happened. Neither of them ever forgot it. They had had a lesson. And particularly Sophia had had a lesson. Having learnt, they left the Rutland amid due ceremonies, and returned to St. Luke's Square. End of Book 4, Chapter 3